Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. International sport is not for everyone in the same way that being an SAS soldier is not for everyone. It comes with a choice and it comes at a cost. So our training programs and our training modalities need to reflect the fact that it's really, really hard. If we haven't exposed players to the relevant experiences that are required to be a Premier League footballer during their development journey, like we've let them down. Just a heads up before we begin, this episode is a bit different as we'll be featuring two interviews back to back. We're going to take you inside Southampton's new learning lab with two of its leadership team. Ian Brunchweiler, and Dr. Andrew Wilson. Over to Simon. I'm joined today by Ian Brunchweiler, who's the Head of Technical Development at Southampton. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Thanks, Simon. First of all, could you tell us a bit about your background? Because it's quite unusual in football. You've been in other sports, other organisations. I guess a point of relevance is that right back in the day when I was a young a young lad, I was involved at Southampton, played Captain Southampton schoolboys under 11s and uh, I was at the centre of excellence as it was called uh, back in the day back in the early 90s so that was my kind of early interactions with the club Um, and then I had to choose between football and cricket because I was doing all right at both of them Uh, so ended up going down the cricketing route and ended up being a, a professional cricketer so I was a pro for about five years at Hampshire and then after a brief foray into a couple of other bits, I kind of got drawn into the coaching world. Uh, so I started coaching at Hampshire. So I ended up coaching the academy and the pros at Hampshire for about five or six years. Uh, I then very fortunately managed to, to get a job working, leading the national development programme at under-17 level at England Cricket. So I was England Cricket and that expanded. So I, I, I coached the England under-17s and England under-19s. Pretty much a dream job, if I'm honest, you know, getting the opportunity to work with just some of the most best, brightest young talents in the country and and take them around the world to different venues and and expose them to all sorts of development um, stuff. Then I had a bit of time in the Olympic sport. So I worked for UK coaching, leading a coach development team across sort of multiple different um, Olympic sports, which is really interesting, I guess, diversion away from being on the ground coach had been a coach and then to I guess strategically lead a team was new for me and then a role came up at Southampton I'm a, I'm a Saints fan went to my first game in 1997 you know I've got a real love for the club and so I, I really just couldn't turn down the opportunity to come back to Southampton I've always been based in Hampshire anyway my family are, are down here so, um, yeah, I came back in 2017. I joined the club as coach development manager um, and then sort of progressed over the last four years. And now I'm very privileged to take up the role of head of head of technical development at the club. And I suppose that shows that Southampton are open-minded, really, because do you think some other clubs would say, oh, he's come from cricket and then he's been at UK coach and he's not worked in football? And there would have been a bit of resistance there. I can't speak on behalf of other clubs, uh, but I can speak on behalf of Southampton, who are very open-minded and you know recruit based on skills, capabilities, motivation. 
so I think I, on reflection, I when I finished as a pro cricketer, I went back and played non-league football. So I was a semi-pro footballer for four years. Uh, so I, you know, I very luckily managed to play in the FA Vars final in 2007 in front of about nearly 40,000 people at Wembley. So I feel like I've I've got enough relevant experience in the game as well as knowledge of, of coaching. You know, I'm a qualified football coach. I think I had just about enough credibility uh, to come into the building. Um, and then hopefully what the coaching team found is that I knew quite a lot about coaching. And hopefully my experience is both working with professional cricketers. You know, I'm very lucky to have worked with the likes of the late, great Shane Warne and Peterson and um, a, a great number of sort of international players at Hampshire, as well as some of the brightest talent in cricket, many of whom are playing for England now, the likes of Sam Curran and um, Ben Folkes, um, Ollie Pope, etc. some of the boys who are coming through to the senior team. You know, I'd spent a lot of time coaching at, at an elite level. So hopefully... I think there's a, a real culture of learning at the club at Southampton. And so someone like myself coming in, I think they were probably checking, could I add value to them? And hope, well, I guess the fact that I'm still here means that there was there was some value that I could add. But yeah, mm-hmm. certainly um, on, a, on a personal level, coming in and God, when I came into the club, our under-18s coaches, I think, had played about 800 professional games between them as a coaching pair. Our under twenty threes lead coach who played a hundred internationals. So these are guys with guys with significant footballing experience and credibility. And I think there there probably was a danger of them going, oh, who's this cricket bloke? So I had to invest time in those relationships um, and and invest time to to hopefully demonstrate the value I could add to them as as practitioners as well as the club more broadly. So obviously you did have playing experience that you say at a youth level and non-league. Do you need that or could you be completely um, outside of football? I honestly don't know. I think it helped. I think it really did help me. Um, So I don't think, I don't know, let's say someone who had come from rugby and been a professional rugby coach and then become a professional rugby coach developer and they were a skillful human, I think they could very, not very easily, I think they could do a job. My sense is it's more about the person. So, A, I was lucky, Matt Matt Hale and Ed Vade, who brought me into the club, were very clear at the outset that I wasn't under pressure to make a difference within the first six weeks. They overtly encouraged me to take my time because I think they knew that I would need to take my time with certain people. And so I think it's some of those relationship building qualities that underpin. So if I, let's take an example. Say I'm two weeks into the job and I walk out to the under-18s coaches who've both played 400 pro games, Premier League players, and I go, I think what you're doing is rubbish uh, and I think you should do this. I don't think I'd have survived very long. Hopefully what occurred is I took my time, I built some relationships with them, I talked to them about elite sport. And then when I started doing coach development observations with them and playing some stuff back to them, I did it hopefully in a skillful enough manner that they could see that I'm not here to tell them what to do. I'm here to help them consider how they can do things better. 
which is a bit of a slight shift. So, yeah, I, I think my sense is the game has moved quite a long way in the last however long, five to ten years. You know, I sit on um, calls with the Premier League, with other clubs, and there's lots of clubs doing some really forward-thinking work. There's lots of clubs seeking to learn from other organisations, other you know business, other sports. I think there's a growing open-mindedness to, um, to what's possible. I think in the past, you can hear the phrase like, this is football, this is different. I challenge that, like, there's a lot of things that are the same. You know, I've worked across multiple Olympic sports and cricket and now football. Like, they're in, they are contextually different, but at the heart of it, you're trying to help young people be really, really good at something. And I know when you got the head of technical development job, um, there were quotes from Matt Hale, the academy director, and he was talking about your experience of coaching and coach development in, I think, sport, business and the military, he said. So... Could you tell us a little bit more about some of those areas? That That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's an exposure to those, really. I, I was really lucky when I was at, predominantly at England Cricket as a national programme lead. I was, part of my role was to go around and find out what other top performing organisations are doing and then try and learn from them. So I was really lucky. You know, I went around to, you know, I spent time with Saracens Rugby, um, I've spent time with uh, Google. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with some top people from the SAS. Um, we were very lucky to, um, well, two, two significant people in that in that space. So firstly, Floyd Woodrow, who was, uh, I think he had however many years, he's a top, top, top level SAS soldier and then became the head of selection for the SAS. So this guy was selecting. So Floyd, I've been on tour with multiple times. We utilised him within the England Development Programme. We didn't call it... Yeah, just to cut in here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. sorry I was just going to um, say, just as a culture coach, basically. Oh, OK, right. Oh, when you say went on tour with him, what do you mean by that? That's not me going into the jungle in Sierra Leone, <laughs> just to clarify. Uh, that is us. So we would we would run an international tour to Australia or to Sri Lanka with uh, the under, England under-19. So uh, Floyd would come right. out. And the, the, the role Floyd performed outstandingly and you know what he's, he's involved at Southampton now what oh. was to say this is how you train people to be elite this is the standards that need to be set these are the non-negotiables in an environment so you know we used to say to the cricket lads and you know we're saying to the football international sport is not for everyone in the same way that being an SAS soldier is not for everyone mm-hmm. it comes with a choice and it comes at a cost so our training programs and our training modalities need to reflect the fact that it's really, really hard. So, so if we haven't, um, you know, if we haven't exposed players to the relevant experiences that are required to be a Premier League footballer during their development journey, like we've let them down. In the same way that back in the day, you know, if we want a young lad to have the skills and capabilities to walk out at uh, you know, the SCG in front of 40,000 people and faced fast bowlers bowling at 90 mile an hour at their head. Like, we have to make training really, really hard. And that was one of the SAS principles is around, you know, the, the level of training and, and creating consequences within training. Um, so, yeah, long-winded answer, but, no, yeah, I spent time, yeah, I spent time looking at, you know, how to, how to Google re- recruit people, how to Google deploy development plans into their into their teams to ensure constant learning. How does 
the elite military work. So, so I, I guess I've been really fortunate to get to know some people really well and, and nick their ideas and grab their principles and then try and put them into our programmes. Oh, brilliant. And what does, uh, I've forgotten his first name already, Mr Woodrow, what, what does Floyd. he do? What Floyd Woodrow, what does he do with Southampton uh, now? Yeah, yeah. So, so Floyd does a couple of things. Um, we've, we've run a pilot programme last year um, with our scholars which um, Floyd has created a kind of a personal development program called Compass for Life, which is an outstanding program. He's currently working with the military, he's working with prisons, works with schools, and we really like the concept. So I got together with our head of psychology, Malcolm Frame, and we looked at this and, and our head of life skills, Ian Herding, and we thought, oh, this looks really good. So Floyd has come in and run a program with the scholars, and it's about being really really aspirational both on and off the pitch because you know the statistics aren't great in terms of the number of these lads who even at scholars age are going to become you know premier league footballers or even have a lengthy professional career so we've got to obviously ensure that they are well set up for their future so this program creates a really nice user-friendly model about being aspirational in every aspect of your life so that's one function and then floyd also supports us we run a an internal um, staff leadership program for our performance staff, called which we call Optimize. And we had two days with Floyd about a cu- couple of weeks ago. I'm laughing as I uh, think about it because the yeah, Floyd, as well as others, um, are involved in delivering this program. But Floyd, Floyd opened up with a two-day hit uh, to the to the cohort, which involved uh, let's say some high stress to find out how they respond to stress, how they work as a team, how they work as individuals, and that's both cognitively and and there was something physical stuff in. But I'm laughing because I knew as soon as, so myself and Mark Jarvis, who's our director of performance support here, we sort of run the programme and uh, had sort of co-designed it with Floyd. And uh, I knew Floyd wanted to do something physical with the group. And from my previous experience, I know that he likes the leaders to be role modelled in this as well. So yeah. I made sure I had my tracksuit on. There's some quite funny photos of myself and Mikey Harris, who's our under-18s coach, just like flat out on the floor, sparked out with a with a giant former SAS man peering over us, laughing at us. So, all right. Um, but well, yeah, what I guess did he do then. How did that come about? How did you come to be on the floor? Oh, we did. We just did some. We did a kind of a. a physical challenge which is just it's just designed to take each person to their own limit so it's not about so, so it's just about doing some physical stuff um but yeah no i mean F- floyd's an incredible human being i've never met anyone like floyd and i think it's just so inspiring and also reassuring when you speak to someone like him you, you know the, the consequences of poor performance in his world or his former world is loss of life you know the 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 consequences of a poor performance in our world is a loss of a game of football. Yeah. However, it's still really important to us. You know, we we had a we had a really um, you know a big win for the under 18s yesterday. You managed to win the um, the South under 18s trophy. You know, we, every player knew they were going into that game. If you win, you win the league. Like for those boys and that coaching team at that time, that is the biggest thing in their life. Like that's everything. So, you know, that's the way our brains and bodies deal with this stuff in the same way that, you know, Floyd and his teams would have gone into their missions knowing that's everything to them. So 
I think it's helped us consider how do we train to ensure that they're ready for these for these moments. And it is quite a big debate, as you say, about the high fallout rates from football. So I expect, you know, yeah. getting to the Premier League is incredibly hard. Becoming a pro is very, very hard as well. It, is that quite a difficult balance then, preparing them and the amount of time and demands it's going to take to prepare them? to be a Premier League player versus the fact most of them won't make it. Yeah, and these the market forces are a real challenge within our game. So that's why, you know, I think Southampton has a really rich history, both of player development and also just, let's call it good bloke development or good young, you know, fine young, you know, we, we will talk about producing fine footballers and fine young men. Yeah. Um, you know, that's not my words. That's what the club has always tried to do. I think we have a genuine responsibility that at whatever stage um, a player leaves our pathway, they leave it having had an amazing experience and they leave it having developed skills and resources that they can use in whatever their next step is. Now, whether that next step is to go to another academy, to go to another football team, whether that's to go into education, or whether that's to go and work in, in another job, you know, we're desperate to provide relevant experiences that give them the best chance of being successful and, and thriving and, and being a really, you know, highly contributing member of society, a good citizen. So it is a balance. I think I think everyone who enters into a footballing pathway is aware that the chance of them achieving their dreams of being a Champions League winner is unlikely. But we shouldn't stop those dreams. We want to. We want every single player to realise their dreams, in the context that they they probably won't, and therefore we have to create a program that that supports their ongoing journey, whatever that might look like. Yeah, I think the other thing to note when I came into Southampton, essentially as an outsider, I was blown away by the level of due diligence around player exits, the exit dossiers, the tracking of alumni, you know the commitment to players once they leave the program is absolutely phenomenal um you know we still have contact with players who've left the program multiple years ago there's still support provided they still come in um you kind of hear when you're working in a different sport you hear stuff about different games and, and the stuff i'd heard about football in general was that quite often players will be released and there's not much support so i was totally blown away by the club's approach and you know, fair play to Matt and Ed and Ian Herding and his team and our player care team. I think they do an incredible job. Was it last year that the technical development department was set up and you yeah. took up the new title? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I've officially been in post since the start of February, but I think it's been, um, you know, the, the sort of brainchild of, of um, Matt Hale and also Matt Crocker, our director of football operations. So um, just to to rejig things things are going well we always want to do things better so i think there was um as always what do they say the only constant is change so you know that that is that is constant but i think like every football club the club has grown organically over a period of time and i think matt and matt and ed felt that there was it was an opportune moment just to take a pause, reassess and look at how our structure and how we could simplify in a few areas. So that's the intention of the technical development department is for it to, to simplify a few things. Um, 
I mean, very in very simple terms, there are three key areas that fall under the technical development department. One is player development, another is coach development, and the final piece is learning research. So, you know, ultimately the player experience will be contributed towards by all our different ologists, let's call them, and support staff. But, you know, the, the coaching team, the technical coaching team will bear a big role in that. So in order for their experience to be as 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 good as possible, we want to create a, a, a fantastic coach development resource around them. And we want to interrogate how we create our learning and development environments. You know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the learning lab, but, you know, we've got some really, really talented coaches. And one of the things, you know, in my previous role as coach development manager, one of the one of the areas I was trying to work on was helping our coaching team, A, become aware of some coaching research, because not loads of them were, B, be able to debug it, because there's a lot of complex language that gets in the way. I know you and I were talking yeah. briefly before, but, you know, the use of words like pedagogy and epistemology and ecological dynamics, you know, these are yeah. not helpful phrases to a coach who wants to help players get better at football, like, or me as a coach. As a young coach in cricket, I didn't know what pedagogy meant. No. So I think yeah. that as a coach development department, we we've been we've really gone at some of that stuff to say we can learn from academia and other other worlds, and we have to translate that into user friendly language. Otherwise, it won't make a difference. Yeah. So yeah, the technical development department essentially has player development, coach development, learning research as its sort right. of three. Yeah. Brilliant. And just to think of sort of like an organisational diagram, is it a case then like Matt Hale would report into you or are you alongside? No, I report into Matt. So Matt's the oh, academy okay. director. Yeah. And um, yeah, so so I guess the technical development department is a function of the academy. Right. Um, uh, you know, obviously I think it's quite an important one. But in the same way, we've we've got a psychology department or a, a sports medical department. So all of us here are are to to serve the player, you know. So our teams are here to, to serve the player. Um, but you know, Matt's the boss of the academy, yeah. um, and then you know I, I I'll also speak regularly with Matt Crocker about you know if our um if we're doing our jobs properly, we need to understand what's going on within our first team environment. Mm. So. I need to be really clear on what Ralph and the first team coaches are doing, what their training approach is, what their style of play is, so that you know it would it would not make sense that our academy, let's call it curriculum, don't really like the word curriculum, but our academy program delivers a player that's not the right type of player for them. So I guess that's part of my role. And you know, I spend time with our speaking to our first team coaches, our first team head of analysis to understand what is it that's going on at that level? What does training look like? So that when our, our academy players from the 16s, 18s or B team go up and train with the first team, which they're doing quite a bit at the moment, you know, they, we need to make sure they're aware of um, the style of play, the style of training, the behaviours that are expected, which is so important so that they can go into that environment and be well received both as a, as a person and as a footballer. So yeah, yeah it's, um, it's a really exciting role for me personally as you know and and hopefully we'll you know we'll make some ground in in building on the successes of, of the, the past and tweaking and evolving bits that we think we can do better 
And it's interesting, you were talking about the new owners, obviously Rasmus Ankerson, who we know quite well on the website, was the co-director of football at Brentford. He is part of that uh, mm. consortium that now owns Southampton. They obviously did away with uh, their academy at Brentford and ran a B team. Um, but the, the new owners are very enthusiastic about the Southampton Academy. There's kind of no uh, implications there. Yeah, yeah, as far as we're aware, unless I get a, you know, a bombshell email on Monday morning. Um, yeah, no, we've met with the owners. They're, they're I think, uh, you know, not quoting them, but the, they've been really impressed with what they've found at Southampton, um, both in terms of the way the club is structured and run from a financial sense. And I think from an academy's perspective, they've been really impressed with the way we go about stuff. That, you know, when we've met with them, we want, you know, we've got in Rasmus and in Henrik two in, incredibly experienced people who can help as well. You know, we want them, we want them to check and challenge what we do. You know, in the same way we would, you know, if um, you know, if, if Floyd comes in, we want him to check and challenge. So um, they're, um, I think they're excited about the the academy. They they were here to watch our under 18s win the win the league, which is, you know, it's, it's a nice moment. That's a nice way of. Of, of showing showcasing the way we're going about player development and the way we're playing, you know, with a, in that, that team is predominantly first year scholars as well and under 16. So it's a young team. It's an exciting team. They can see that we've got numerous age group, you know, numerous lads who are in international age group squads at 19s, under 17s, 16s, 15s. We've got, we've got good players coming through. So they can see that. Um, they can see that there's a path into the first team for these lads as well. So I think, the context is probably different from when Rasmus is at Brentford. You know, I wasn't there. The context here is is um, we've got, I guess, a proof of concept of players coming through the academy into our first team. So yeah, ho- hopefully they uh, they like what we're doing and and want to continue to invest in it. Yeah, definitely. And for the final part of the interview, I'll talk about the learning lab, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, so you're one of the people. You're, you're heavily involved, and in you're on the management team, are you? For that, yeah, I have the the um, the privilege of being on the learning lab board, as we call oh, okay, it. Right. You know, we don't have to wear suits and ties to go to our learning lab board meetings. But yeah, um, so as per I think the article that, that that you put out, it's it's the brainchild of Malcolm Frame, who's our head of psychology, and Dr. Andrew Wilson from Leeds Beckett University. They've been thinking about this for a long time I don't know how many years but but a couple of years ago myself and Mark Jarvis who work closely together on a number of projects met up with Malcolm um, and we were talking about it and, and Malcolm's got some unbelievable ideas he's an incredibly smart guy and I think the role initially Mark Jarvis and myself and now Mark Jarvis myself and Ed Vaid play is to try and um, help all the concepts and, and theoretical underpinning that Malcolm and Andrew have and then bring that into the kind of context and reality of the academy. So that's kind of where it started. Um, and I, yeah, it's, I guess we're all, a, we're all a driving force in different ways. I oversee the coaching team and uh, Mark Jarvis oversees the performance, we call it a performance support team, but, you know, the psychology, analysis, sports medical teams. So the fact that us as a pair are overseeing the teams that, de- that deploy coaching and learning onto players is important. 
um, Ed has a PhD in psychology as well as being the assistant academy director. So he and he um, he's unbelievable in terms of player review, player audit processes, um, tracking and monitoring development. So I think I think amongst the five members of the board, we have a blend of academic rigor, coaching knowledge, sports science and medical knowledge psychology knowledge etc so yeah that that's how it's working and then i guess the overarching objectives of the learning lab i think you put the 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 quote in in the article that the learning lab is not a room at the training ground the learning lab is the training ground so it's our intention initially through the deployment of three specific phds to interrogate our coaching and learning environment both on and off the pitch Yep. So, um, yeah, that's it's and, and, and I guess what's really interesting to me is that we want to do research that matters, like not research for the sake of research. Like if, yeah. if we don't learn stuff and adapt our practice or adapt our ability to make decisions off the back of this project, then it's failed. And has anything from the learning lab actually gone into practice yet at the academy or changed so, the way you do things? It's only very recently started. Right, yeah. um, so the first, so we, as I said, we've got three PhD students, one who started in October, the other two started in February. So it's very fresh. The early work for, so there's one, pe- there's one piece of work that is informing practice. So um, a research team interviewed coaches across the entire academy pathway, um, performance support staff across the pathway and some senior management. And that those interviews have been um, analysed for themes, and those themes have been a part of a, a kind of a current review of our practice. And we're updating our academy performance plan at the moment. And some of those themes are informing what we're going to go at for the next cycle. So that's a yes in that space. Uh, one of the PhDs is around virtual reality. Yeah, I'd say that's the that's the PhD I know I personally know the least about. So I'll be really intrigued. But there is some utility in that in that we've got players putting on their oculus headsets mm. and doing their scanning and um and looking at the, at the sort of virtual reality um you know the, the and the idea is to find out is there a place for this like you know one of the things is to test and check current technology and see if it's got a place mm. so i guess amongst the three phds one is trying to validate a, a psychology model and, and look at how well it, it informs practice and player development so that's very much a something we're doing let's interrogate it and see how well it's going second phd is looking at our coaching and learning environment and looking at is is so what we've got written down in our in our kind of academy player development framework and and our session design principles and our coach development work and all the bits there like is that being represented on the ground and how well is that being represented based on current learning in in sorry current academia in the learning space and then the final final one is the VR, which is yeah. for me an interesting opportunity to look at some tech that's a bit different. Yeah. And then we've got some sub projects as well, some of which has been deployed um, uh, by internal members of staff. So we we have we have people doing projects. Um, uh, we've got a coaching a coach placement um, who's doing a, a dissertation. So I'm I'm doing a piece of research in collaboration with Loughborough University, looking at match day observations and coding coaching so 
So yeah, we've got three PhDs, we've got some sub-projects, and hopefully the outcome is that it will either help us do something differently or make decisions differently. And have you spoken much to the players and the coaches already about the learning lab? Players less so, other, only the ones who've interacted with the VR headset, but, but coaches, yes. Yeah, it's sort of very much on radar at the moment. Many of the coaches have been involved in that initial piece of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've got a really, really open-minded coaching team who genuinely want to get better. So I think that doesn't happen by accident. That that happens, you know, that, that predates me, the work that Matt and Ed have done. You know, Ed was formerly the head of coaching and learning here and the work he's done in terms of creating a, a, a learning culture in particular that I managed to pick up the bat on and run with for a couple of years. And now Steve King, who's our coach development manager, is, is running with. So I think we've got a really open-minded, curious coaching team who have got a nice blend of they're confident in what they're doing, but they're humble enough to know that there's probably a way you could do it a bit better. Yeah. And then as a senior management team, we're, we're saying, look, if we're not getting better, we're, we're lagging. Yeah. So, so we, you know, one of the competitive advantages any organization can have is to learn faster than another organization. So that'll be one of our ambitions. Yeah. Excellent. And just a final one. I know we were talking earlier about there can sometimes be a bit of a gap between football coaching and academia and research. Um, And I was very interested in ecological learning, which I hadn't actually heard of before, but I did find some of it quite abstract and quite difficult to understand. And there can also be this thing, can't there, of people saying, well, yeah, we've done a lot of that and we knew that, but you're just giving it fancy terms, you know. so, yeah, is that a big thing, do you think, bridging those two worlds? Massive, massive. And I think, I think I first became aware of how wide the gap was when I was working at UK Coaching because I got to meet loads of unbelievably smart academics who were producing brilliant papers and, and or had, thought, had historically produced brilliant papers. And I'm thinking, hang on a sec, I've been a professional coach for 12 years and I've just never seen any of this stuff before. And, and you know, for example, I would have, I would have done put into practice certain coaching methods that I'd have just thought, oh, that makes sense. Actually, there's probably loads of research out there that, that backs it up that might be inaccessible. And I remember sitting in a room with a load of, you know, really smart academics, and hearing them talk about coaching and learning, and they've got so much to offer so much to offer the field of coaching i think one of the challenges is the language that's used can be can make it inaccessible and words like pedagogy and epistemology and uh, ecological dynamics and things like that you know if i'm you know not no disrespect to anyone but if i'm a, a really well-meaning um dad who wants to be a grassroots coach for because they're you know invested in their kids development those words might not mean anything to me so I think part of one of the outputs of the learning lab, amongst many other, you know, there's lots of people trying to do this, is trying to debug some of this language mm-hmm. and talk about learning or let's solve some problems, you know, let, or let's create problems for the players to solve in a training environment. Hopefully that sort of language is accessible, whereas you could say that in a more complex way. So, yeah, look, there, there is a gap. But there's also the other gap is that often... Um, research will 
be conducted upon university students or grassroots clubs, um, which again is, is, is a high value. What we're hopefully going at here is bringing top, top end academics together with a genuinely elite development environment. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's, there's two bits there. One is bridge the gap between language and two is, is allow the academics to genuinely get on the ground in this environment and invite other people in to have a look and be involved as well. Like, yeah. you know, I think, yes, selfishly, we want to learn faster than anyone else, but we also feel a responsibility to the performance community that, that broadly we can help learn about coaching and learning in this, you know, in this country or this, in this space. So. I would agree with this, that the most important thing I think in any discipline is relation, building relationships, be that with players, other staff, um, and you think someone like Tony Strudwick, very qualified, very smart guy, but was also able to build those relationships so people would listen to him and he could have an impact, you know. And that kind of ties in again, doesn't it, I guess, with what you're talking about there? Massively. I just, you know, I, I think that the, and this has been where a lot of our development focus has been for our staff, not just coaches, but we, you know, we run this sort of, leadership development program for emerging leaders at the club because I think what you find is we often find very highly skilled technical practitioners and a lot of their learning and CPD will have been about being the best physio in the world or the you know the best you know technical you know knowing about sports science I think logically we all know that you can know you could know everything there is to know about sports science but if you can't talk to people and you can't develop relationships it's essentially useless. Yeah. So we've really got overtly gone at some of the kind of human skills and interaction skills that will allow that massive technical knowledge to come to the fore and be most impactful because, you know, developing relationships, either, either staff to staff or staff to player, that is going to be ultimately the deciding factor about how effective your interventions are. Mm. Um, and, no, we all know it, don't we? we? We know we'll have had coaches or teachers in our lives who've just been able to connect with us. Mm. And it's those, those, are the, those are the people who have had the most influence, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. It's very rarely the one who you go, oh, wow, they were a tactical genius. Mm. Very rarely. It's the one who made you feel special or made you feel listened to mm. or was able, developed enough relationship to give you some clean feedback you know I, I had across the course of my career both as a player and as a member of staff I had lots of critical feedback as we all as many of us will and it's it's awful to take but if it's delivered by someone who's who you think cares about yeah. I think the the value in that feedback becomes so much higher and you know this is we're doing some training with our coaches at the moment and other staff about exactly that about how do you compassionately give difficult feedback either to players or to other members of staff now that is not an easy thing to do it takes a high level of skill high level of emotional intelligence you know a high level of being able to monitor the person in front of you and what's going on for them and if you get that right the impact can be absolutely enormous yeah. so yeah i mean sorry I, I'm, I'm on one here because i just no, totally agree totally so, agree. i think we can all empathize with that in whatever line of work we do yeah or whatever yeah. Yeah, and, and it's like, you know, my, my wife works in marketing and, you know, we, when we're having a chat and debriefing our complex days over a meal or whatever, it nearly always comes back to 
the, the human skills. Now, whether that's that you're delivering a digital marketing strategy to, the, you know, the Emir region, or you're, you know, trying to trying to work with a 13 year old player. Ultimately, the the skills of interacting with humans is going to be the bit that, that it relies on the most. So, I think that the opportunities to train this area better are massive um, because a lot of the time we're making it up as we go along and learning yeah. from experience. Yeah. So um, it's definitely something we've we've been going at for a few years and will continue to is that sort of human interaction space. Yeah. I was going to say that actually. I think that we say it's the most important area, yet it's the area we're probably taught the least about, I think, in all fields. Massively. You know, I've been really lucky that I, as a part of the one of the Premier League programmes I went on, um, we did a foundation certificate in coaching and mentoring um, delivered by a, a company called Catalyst 1-4. And I think that most of the heads of coaching and academy managers go through this. But I got absolutely captured by it because it's all about attentive listening, skillful questioning, holding the silence, being able to choose when to speak and when to hold back. And, yeah. you know, we, we've, we've had, had numerous coaches now do a level five qualification in, in coaching and mentoring. I've just got another one of our coaches going on the foundation certificate that I did. You know, I've, I've now started the diploma level on that because I just, I'm totally fascinated and captured by the power of, of skillful human behavior. So, yeah, it's, uh, I think, an untapped area. I think it's an area where um, we over-index on technical skill and we under-index on human skill. So yeah. I think it's a, it's, it's a space that we could, we could do better in. Definitely. And just a final one, do, do you think there is a bit of an assumption that you've either got that, those human skills, or you haven't? Uh, and do you think we can do a lot more to develop them? Yeah, possibly there is an assumption that you're either got it or not. My, my, my experience would be, and my belief is that everyone can develop. Mm. If, if you create the appropriate um, conditions, everyone can develop to a certain extent. Now, we've all got our own capacities, um, but I think with, a, with a, a process of raising awareness of self, because a lot of people won't have ever had good feedback. Yeah. You know, I certainly didn't. I'd got to a certain stage in life before someone gave me some pretty critical feedback. And I was like, oh, God, you know, that hurts, doesn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like being stabbed in the heart when someone yeah. says, um, you know, when you do this, it really annoys everyone. Like, <laughs> really? I thought that was great. You know, that really hurts. Now, if you've got the, the will to take it on board and go, oh, God, actually, now I reflect on that really deeply, it isn't very good. All right, that's the starting place, isn't it? Raising self-awareness. So skillful feedback and then going on a journey of going, all right, I might be rubbish at that, but I think I can get a little bit better. And if, you, if, if we can take that process, then I, I genuinely think, you know, we can all develop in these areas. For most, for most of us, providing critical developmental feedback to others isn't that easy. And um, so actually, I've always tried to take the stance that, that's probably been really hard for that person to give me that feedback. And they've probably been nervous about giving me that feedback. So I need to respect it. So mm -hmm. it is a two way thing, you know, because you know, we all know what it's like. If you give someone a bit of feedback and they just kick off and go, oh, no, you know, that's again, A, that's understandable, but it's not that helpful because, you know, bit of a buzz phrase, but, you know, feedback is a gift. It really is. If somebody genuinely yeah, yeah. and caringly offers you some feedback. Yeah. 
you then have the choice of how you deal with that. You can either shout at them or tell them they're an idiot, or you can go, thank you. I'm gonna, As much as that's hurt me, I'm going to go away and think about that. And I yeah. think for me, that's the response that you'd want. Yeah, that's a great point to end on. Thanks so much for your time, Ian. Really interesting. Brilliant. Great speaking to you. Thanks for having great. me. You too. Thank you. I'm joined now by Dr. Andrew Wilson, who is a reader in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and part of the leadership team for the Learning Lab at Southampton Football Club. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, First of all, can I just ask about your own journey um, and how you got to this point for people who don't know you? Yeah, so um, so I'm a research psychologist um, and an ecological psychologist. So I I did my PhD in the States at Indiana University. um, So I finished that in 2005. And so I did my PhD on skill acquisition and learning and perceptual learning. Um, And then uh, after that, I came to the UK. So I've been, uh, uh, so I'm from New Zealand originally, um, but I've been in the UK now since 2005. And I did some postdocs at the University of Aberdeen and then the University of Warwick. And then I ended up uh, in Leeds working in the sports science department first at the University of Leeds. And then I moved back into psychology uh, to, to Leeds Beckett. What, what is it that's interested you about skill acquisition? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I, so my, my research interests are around the underlying mechanisms of how we go about going from not being able to do something to being able to do something. Um, And so I'm interested in studying um, sort of how we perceive our environments uh, and how we, how that perception enables us to become attuned to our environments and to develop new skills uh, and to interact with them. And I just, I've I've always been interested in learning as a topic. I find it a really, I find it, it's a really interesting domain uh, for asking and answering a lot of just really interesting questions about behavior and about where, where it comes from. So um, yeah, it's just been, it's, it's been a lot of fun actually <laughs> over the years. Mm-hmm. And I'd not actually heard of ecological learning before, which yeah, maybe sure. a lot of our readers and listeners won't have either. Um, could, could you just explain it exactly what that is and the origins of it? Uh, there was a, a, a psychologist called James Gibson who's working in the States um, sort of from the 20, 1920s through to his death in 79. And he was particularly interested in perception and he was particularly interested in um, how, how we can, how it's possible that we can perceive our environments in a way that actually enables us to do anything interesting. And so he spent a long time engaging with some of these ideas about <clears throat> how uh, visual perception is limited in various ways and that it's based on an image formed on the back of our eye, for example. <clears throat> he spent a long time trying to get those ideas to work and he became increasingly convinced that actually this was just the wrong way to think about perception. And so from sort of the, the late 50s and the 60s and the 70s, he developed what's become known as the ecological approach to perception and action. Um, and so, and, and that's kind of the, the grounding for this, for this notion of, this, of these ecological ideas and skill acquisition. And the basic idea there uh, is this notion of what he calls direct perception, the idea that as we're going through the world, as we're going about our day-to-day business, walking, reaching out, interacting with objects, that there's information, perceptual information and in light and sound that's actually deeply informative and, and, and actually enables us to be very, very closely coupled to our environment so that we can actually, we're actually very closely connected. And he spent a lot of time sort of developing these ideas 
and developing uh, sort of the framing and uh, running some of the first experiments just to sort of show what, what sort of thing this information might be. Um, and then kind of in the, in the 1980s, uh, uh, sort of after his death and after the publication of his last book, um, his students and their students uh, started to effectively to do the science and started to develop um, experimental methods and ways of studying and asking these slightly different questions about where behaviour came from. And what happened over the course of the, sort of the next 10, 20 years was that we started to find that by asking different questions about how we go about doing things in the world, we started finding very different answers that were really starting to suggest that all the good stuff in cognition wasn't just happening in the brain, but it was happening in a brain that's in a body that can move around in a world that isn't random, that has a lot of sort of that offers opportunities to actions, what people call performances, and so on and so on. And so we started to sort of demonstrate that there was another way of thinking about what cognition is. And when you make that switch, you also change how you think about what learning is. So learning from the sort of this more traditional approach is about it's about the acquisition of knowledge that gets implemented in these mental representations so that you remember things that you previously learned and you bring that to bear at the time. And Gibson's shift was more about identifying that what learning is, it's, a, it's, a, it's when we change in the kinds of relationships that we can form with our environment. So we change the way that we perceive our environment. We change the kinds of opportunities that, have, that are available to us. And so the ecological part of ecological psychology is to think about humans, but also actually organisms in general, as uh, things that, that, that exist in particular worlds. We, we have niches, right? So, uh, you know, I, I'm a thing of a particular size and I go around worlds and of a particular size and particular layouts, et cetera. And just to take very seriously the idea that all of this feeds into, into behaviour, it got connected up with skill acquisition in, in sports in particular uh, through the work, of, and in particular by Keith Davids, uh, and his collaborators, where one of the things that Keith did was that he brought the ideas and insights of ecological psychology, uh, things like dynamical systems theory as well, ways of thinking about systems and the kinds of things that they are, brought a lot of that together and then started asking questions about learning and skill acquisition from that point of view. And then effectively that and just by virtue of exploring these very different questions, you start ending up in very different kinds of places. So you start thinking about what skill acquisition is differently. It's no longer about acquiring knowledge or transferring knowledge, but it's about learning how to become more sort of skillfully connected to your environment through perception. So has there traditionally been an ecological approach to coaching and skill acquisition, thinking about football in particular? So... It's, it's funny, it's an interesting point now in the history of it where there's a lot of people who are aware of its existence and there's a lot of people who are starting, across a lot of sports actually, there's a lot of coaches who are starting to explicitly adopt this more ecological approach to their practice. To the best of my knowledge, nothing sort of really systematic or programmatic has, has, has kicked off anywhere. There's like a lot of good work will happen here and a lot of good work will happen over here and a lot of good work will happen over here, but it'll be spread out across different sports and all over the world, et cetera. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of people doing these things and trying these things out. And sometimes they're off just doing it um, as coaching practice. Sometimes they're doing it in explicit collaboration with researchers or 
the coaches might be the researchers themselves becoming increasingly common. Um, so, the, yeah, there's there's a lot going on, but it's not all joined up yet, I guess, and that's certainly one of the things that we're trying to achieve with the Southampton project. Yeah, okay. So if there hasn't been that systematic approach, how would you describe the uh, sort of prevalent approach there has been that you've seen? Um, I mean, it's it's always a little hard to characterise, but the sort of the broad idea it gets back to sort of traditional ideas about what learning is and thinking about learning as the acquisition of knowledge. Um, so learning learning knowledge, learning things you can verbally express, for example, tactics, strategy, stuff like that. Um, there's also been traditionally a real focus on technique, on, on developing specific technique. Um, and that comes in part, at least, and it's sort of inspired by theories of motor control and about what motor control is about, the idea that motor control is about learning how to produce the same movement over and over again under the same conditions, for example, and that this should be the goal that if you are learning how to move and learning how to, to do a new task, then your job's actually to learn how to get good at repeating it over and over again. And that's been one of the other motivations uh, for the ecological analysis is that um, there's been a growing understanding in the motor control literature now that actually that's simply not how people move. Uh, people don't do the same things exactly ever. Even if you ask somebody to do something very simple and obviously repetitive, people never do it exactly the same way twice, and which turns out to be a good thing, right? Because even if I'm asking you to do something simple like, I don't know, repetitively push a button or, or swing a hammer as you're trying to bang a nail in, <clears throat> every time you swing the hammer, you have to kind of adjust yourself a little bit in order to cope with where you started from and you have to cope with noise and variability in the system. And people have just started to identify now, and this is just now a very common finding in the motor control literature, that people people don't do the same thing over and over again. You do the same kind of thing, but what you're actually producing is, is a response that every single time you're moving, you're trying to produce a movement that's uh, tuned into the current task demands and those task demands will fluctuate a little bit over time as your arm gets tired you'll have to do different things with your arm to keep going on and so on and so forth so mm. it turns out that people people don't move in that kind of robotic same same way uh, again and again um, and that that's actually quite a good thing that's important it's a feature and not a bug and so these traditional ideas about what motor control is about developing these programs that you can just run off and, and, and deploy at the right time that leads you to coaching, to try and coaching uh, good technique or that trying to get people to, to move in that one really correct way. Uh, and so you go look and see what experts do and you try and bring your players to do what that particular expert does as opposed to identifying maybe what one particular expert is and then noting that that suits maybe them given their the kind of body that they have and the history and learning that they have, but that a different person with a different body and the different experiences you can end up in the same place with the same level of skill, but you, there's no need for you to do it in exactly the same way. And that's actually just kind of how the system works normally. We did a live podcast with uh, someone called Rennie Mullenstein. Okay. And he was first team coach at Manchester United with Sir Alex Ferguson uh, when they won, you know, four Premier Leagues in six years when he was there. He was at the academy prior to that. Mm -hmm. And at the podcast, he brought along a book by Vil Curver. I'm not sure if you've heard of him before, Curva Coaching. Um, and it actually had photos of lots of different skills, mm -hmm. so things like a Cruyff turn. And 
he'd been a huge advocate of this throughout his career and he'd actually coached and early on and got kids to replicate these skills in the photos mm -hmm. and i think it would go in stages you know so if you did the stages you could do that yes. skill that would seem not to be an ecological approach then or even the opposite of yeah i mean that certainly sounds like more of the traditional focus on trying like the idea there is that you've got one best way of achieving a goal and that you've got one best that there's a that there's sort of a maximally efficient movement that you might produce for example uh, and again just one of the things that's been coming out of the research over the last 20 30 years is people have started to kind of look at this and ask questions about uh, about this is that that's just not how people move and that they can't move like that all the time so there's just always a bit of noise in the system so you can never actually reproduce the same movement exactly the same way twice and so given that that's the case we should probably not try and do that because otherwise we'll just end up failing all the time and so what the system actually does is that you get skilled at tweaking and adjusting and managing that variability and that noise to keep producing the single outcome you, you say you're trying to swing your hammer and trying to hit a nail successfully you move so that the hammer intersects the nail properly but exactly how you go about doing that will just be a little bit different every single time and it'll be a little bit different across people as well uh, and just one of the things in the ecological approach is just taking that seriously and trying to kind of embrace it as a feature of the system and then uh, allowing that allowing the system space to explore that flexibility so that it can take advantage of that flexibility and, and, and remain adaptive. When I watch the pros, someone like Federer, it looks like they have such a honed technique. They always mm -hmm. hit it the same way every time. And yep. that's kind of the strength, you know, that it is a very, very solid technique and shot. Um, yep. so do, do you think, would there still be variability now then, would you say? or? Oh. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things you see in experts when you go looking for it is you see that they've got what they're doing is that they're kind of working with the variability rather than fighting it. And the reason why is it like even even with a even with a very sort of practice move, say, you know, a typical first serve from Federer, right, will we'll look fairly similar. Right. It's not the case that these things are radically different because, of course, it has to still be a tennis serve which means it has to work within the constraints of the rules of tennis. It has to successfully, enter, you know, you have to be able to move the racket so that it actually hits the tennis ball. And so there's a lot of constraints there that are keeping it to be the same kind of movement. But every time Federer throws the ball up, it's going to go to basically the same height, but probably not exactly the same height. Um, on any given day, the weather conditions will be a bit different. There might be a bit of wind that you have to worry about, etc. And so one of the things that's come out of the research is that actually the the movement control system is is constantly kind of working with all of this and because it has the ability to do to, to achieve the same end goal in a bunch of different ways then there's usually at least one way that will actually produce a successful hit and the system always seems to be working with with that goal in mind um, and so yeah so even experts so this idea of never quite doing the same thing the same way twice, there's kind of a catchphrase for it called repetition without repetition. And that catchphrase comes from a book um, by a guy, Nikolai Bernstein, who was a physiologist, Russian physiologist working at the beginning of the 20th century. His book got translated into English in the 60s, and that's when other people started noticing his work. But he had done this, this um, 
he, he was one of the pioneers of using uh, motion capture and slow motion video analysis to actually look at the detailed movements of uh, as they and looking at how they unfold. And one of the studies he did was literally with blacksmiths who were doing this repetitive bang, bang, bang as they manipulate uh, all sorts of things. And, and what he found was that even when there's this repetitive movement required, every single one of those was slightly different. Why? Because every time the, where they were trying to hit was slightly different, they will have moved the thing they were trying to hit. So effectively, even these high, in effect, this is this is actually becomes a hallmark of expertise, is that while they're producing the same basic kind of movement, the, the exact details of how that movement unfolds over time are tuned into the specific demands of what the movement has to do right now in order to achieve the goal. There's a brilliant quote, actually, from Rafa Nadal. I wish I had it at hand, but he I think he's basically asked why he practices so much still. Yeah. And he says, because every shot I've ever hit is slightly different. Yes. And yeah. so he's trying to kind of master as many as he can, I guess. Yeah, well, what he's, you know, he's just giving himself the opportunity to experience that space of possible outcomes so that he's he's developing the ability to skillfully engage with the demands of his environment. He's, he's learning what balls look like when they move through the air. He's learning how to use that vision to control and time his actions, et cetera. And so this is one of the big kind of insights and one of the big central ideas in ecological dynamics and ecological psychology is that what learning is, is it's about becoming more and more attuned to the opportunities for action in your environment. Right? You're becoming more and more skillfully engaged with, with your current task environment. And, and you're not learning just to produce the same movement. You're learning to, to, to move in response to, to that attunement. Are there still fundamentals that you need, though? Because I'm thinking uh, Federer with his serve, he still needs to hit it at like full extension. You know? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a complicated question to which I don't, I don't have a set answer. Um, one of the ideas is that you don't get those the fundamentals of that movement by practicing the fundamentals in isolation. This is kind of a, another idea from ecological psychology is about the, the training that you should do should be in some important way representative of what you're going to be doing on the day, right? And so training the movements in isolation, so, so just training how to swing a tennis ball, a tennis racket without a ball, for example, all that's going to teach you is how to move a tennis racket. It's not going to teach you how to move a tennis racket so as to intercept the ball. And so, again, the idea is that we learn to do and get good at whatever it is that we spend our time doing. So in the context of coaching and guiding skill acquisition, if you want people to be good at doing stuff on game day, then they should spend their time doing things that will actually show up on game day, right? And so... <clears throat> What we tend to would uh, tend to argue is that the technique is not so much the thing that you train, but the technique is the thing that emerges as the best solution to the task that you are presenting the person with. And then obviously, you know, there are some things you can do. People can obviously, because, the, because we've got lots of different ways of doing any given task, you can easily fall into what's effectively a bad habit, right? You can find a solution that's not optimal and that can get in the way of things. And so there are ways of, of, of adjusting and, and guiding the learner's attention to, to these problems. Um, but again, from the ecological point of view, the, the goal is not to teach you to move in a particular way. The goal is to teach you to allow your movements 
to organize themselves in response to how you're perceiving your environment. Does that make sense? That's kind yes, of- yeah, yeah, it does definitely. Because I was just thinking that actually whether it makes the coach a bit redundant. Um, but the coach could still see, as you say, if you've got a bad yeah. habit or if you're serving with a bent arm. Or- yeah, so really importantly, it doesn't make the coach redundant, but it does pretty radically alter the job of the coach and of the educator. So it changes the role of the coach from being the source of knowledge or the source of the correct solution. Uh, it changes their role from that to, to being a designer of environments, right, and, just, and a designer of constraints. Um, and where the coach's job is less about making the person move in a particular way and more about creating training environments that allow the person to explore and find those solutions themselves. And so this is another big sort of key uh, idea in the ecological approach. You don't just, you can't just take a learner, plonk them down into the middle of a, say, a football game and expect them to learn football. There's, there's far too much going on. So this is in the ecological approach, coaching is about the development of constraints, right? And the idea of a constraint is simply what you're doing is you're trying to create a smaller version of some aspect of the game that within the bounds of that constraint still has all the interesting stuff going on in it, all the elements that would be present on game day, but you've constrained it so that, say, there's only a few of those available. And you're trying to make it so that uh, there are opportunities to act that would that will be present on game day, but you're spending time practicing skillfully engaging with that sort of restricted set of it, right? And so this this becomes the really important job of the coach now, and this gets really this is very hard, is figuring out how best to constrain the environment down so that you're still offering the player all the opportunities to learn how to perceive and act in the game day context, but not overwhelm them and not guide their attention to come up with solutions that won't work on the day. So then, then the, the role of the coach remains really important, but it becomes completely different, right? It becomes, a, becomes about designing environments, designing training environments, and then evaluating how well that design went. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't because when you let people explore those spaces, they sometimes come up with, with ways of solving the task that never even occurred to you. And if that's not what you were trying to encourage them to do, then you have to come up with another way of reshaping the environment. And you'll do that in collaboration with your players. You, you'll start to co-redesign the environment and iterate that over time. So it becomes a really, it's still a really, like the role of the educator of the, of the, of the person who's trying to guide learning remains really kind of central, but it's less, it's less of a position of authority and more of like a, a central node and a network of things that, and their jobs to bring those things together in dialogue. I suppose the thing, if you're learning a skill from a textbook or copying a video, that is going to be quite limiting as well. Something like Johan Cruyff, no one had done the Cruyff term before, mm-hmm. but that was something he'd evolved from playing the game that was effective. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it as well with um, sort of cage football in South London. Mm-hmm. Someone like Yannick Balassi, he's come up with skills that people haven't seen before. You know, they wouldn't be in a textbook or a video. So they're reinventing yeah. the game, really, aren't they? Yeah. And like any sports fan as well, just kind of, you know, you all know those, you know, there'll be an player who suddenly shows up on, on the scene of your sport and just redefines how things get done. And there's always that period of competition where an adaptation where people are trying to figure out how to deal with this new kind of way of dealing with it. And, and there'll be a couple of years where that person just has an out-and-out advantage, right? And then you start to see people start to find way to cope with the thing that they're doing, et cetera. But, yeah, it's that 
there's all kinds of it's that the, there's those if, you, if you're just teaching people how to do what's been done before then there's kind of a sense of you're, you're cutting off the, the possibility of that sort of innovation and that and then that innovation comes from really surprising places and it comes and where does it come from it comes from the places where people are playing and exploring under you know under you know in those games kind of situations you know footballs you know it's famous for this you know sort of the, the whole brazilian football culture big chunk of the innovation and the way that they play comes from the fact that just playing football in the street is just a thing that happens and there's so much of it going on that there's so many people trying new things in, in a place where they can just try new things and see what happens, you know. So there's you, you get this real innovation coming out of that. Whereas if you're not careful, if you're if you're training to a really specific technique, then people are going to learn that technique, but they're not then going to necessarily adapt that technique to suit some capability that they have that maybe somebody else doesn't have. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose you never know what the game is going to look like in the future either. Do yeah. You? Because I'm thinking things like Monica Sellers hitting double-handed off both yep. sides. You probably yep. haven't seen before, but maybe yep. racket technology allowed her to do that and different all, things like that. Yeah, that's it. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of variability that gets introduced in as rule changes, technology as the gear changes, etc. And yeah, you see that innovation, and that innovation comes from the fact that you know, um, like I say. As a general rule, as movement systems, we have there's always more than one solution to any given thing that you're trying to achieve. There's always there's always multiple ways of hitting that tennis ball, right? And some of them are going to be better than others under certain circumstances, and some of those are going to be available to some players and not to other players, right? So, you know, um, you know, there's there's things Federer can do that I can't do, for example, you know, um, and like I can watch Federer all day, every day for the rest of my life, and I'll never be able to play tennis the way he does, right? But if I spend as much, and even actually, if I even, it's highly likely I could have spent as many years trying to play tennis, and I would never have got as good as Federer, for example, right? So again, there's there's my capabilities are different from his capabilities, and and so the way I play tennis shouldn't necessarily be the way he plays tennis and something that i've seen a lot again um doing the website is isolating skill mm-hmm. acquisition if that's the right but, but isolating the components yes. of skill acquisition um so something like visual awareness training um this idea that you can improve your visual awareness by things like hitting um lights on a wall flashing lights on a wall yeah um and again, I would guess that is not an ecological way of learning, yeah. even though it's been quite prevalent, that idea. Yeah. So, so again, funnily enough, so, so that idea that you can decompose a skill into its parts, mm. train the parts in isolation and then get an improvement in the overall skill, that idea in some ways has its roots in these traditional understanding of what motor control is and the idea that motor control is is this piece plus this piece plus this piece equals movement right and so you can train the isolated bits um and this again there's so the ecological approach really says no actually that's that's the wrong way to go about doing things because if you train people to get good at hitting lights on a wall then they're going to get really good at hitting lights on a wall um but there's no kind of necessary relationship between the skill needed to do that and the skill needed to play tennis or play football right and 
a big a big line of evidence for this comes from what's called the transfer of learning literature. So the idea that you can learn one skill and then that skill transfers to another context. And one of the one of the funny things about the transfer of learning literature is that learning doesn't transfer very far. You get really good at learning what you're learning how to do. And it doesn't take very much of a change in that task for all that learning to just go away and not show itself and for you to have to kind of start all over again. Um, yeah, so, so so those kinds of isolated practices where you're trying to train some isolated aspect of the skill, the data kind of shows that that's not a good way of learning how to play the sport. And then for sort of, yeah, for like for, for theoretical reasons and for the way we understand what it is that people are learning, what are you learning? You're actually learning how to skillfully engage with your task environment. And if you want people to be skillful, able to skillfully interact with a football task environment, you should probably put people into a football task environment rather than a non-football task environment because there's just there's going to be no overlap. And so one of the big insights then from the ecological approach is that, for example, there's kind of no such thing as visual awareness. There's visual awareness in the context of hitting lights on a wall as one thing, and then there is visual awareness in the context of trying to play tennis, and there is visual awareness in the context of trying to pick up your coffee cup and not knock it over. But the idea is that each one of those is a separate skill, uh, and the and a lot of the evidence really is kind of backs that up, especially just in terms of how little it takes to change a skill before nothing transfers. Yeah, because it's funny when you talk to players like I did. Uh on the British Lions tour when they were doing some of this work. And they say that really helped me. You know, I, my peripheral vision, I could see a player coming to tackle me. I could see the ball. Um, but but it, is it not always accurate what players say and recount? Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have to actually do science on these things. Because if it was just as easy as asking people, then we would have solved a lot of these problems 150, 200 years ago, right? So it turns out that the way we talk about what we do and the way we actually go about doing the things that we do are actually not the same thing. Uh, and there's lots of sort of evidence and reasons to, to expect that to be the case. There's a lot of things about the way, about the mechanisms of how you skillfully interact with your environment that just we don't talk about. We, don't have, we literally don't have the words sometimes to describe the things that we get up to and how these things go about doing. And so... This is one of the, this, this is where science makes its contribution, I think, to feeding into and helping coaches and players understand what's going on, is that by running the careful experiments, we can start to identify, well, how is it that the system is actually going about and how do we need to be talking about what's going on? And yeah, you find a great big disconnect. So it's not the case that athletes and coaches don't know anything about what's going on. Obviously, obviously you know a lot of things, but Gibson had this phrase uh, that's been adopted by a lot of people, sort of making a distinction between knowledge of and knowledge in your activity, right? So knowledge of your activity is, you know, is that kind of third-person perspective, verbal description of what it is you just did. And then there's the knowledge in the activity, which isn't necessarily verbal. It's you show that you have knowledge in the game by, by playing the game. And you demonstrate that you know what you're doing by virtue of the fact that when you tried to kick that ball, it worked, right? And the idea is that those two things, that knowledge of and knowledge in, are actually two really different, distinct things. And the relationship between them is not clear, which means that you can't study knowledge in the game by studying knowledge of the game. 
right? There's only so much, there's only so much you can learn about the other one by studying each one individually. Quite a big thing, again, in football at the moment is scanning, which is mm-hmm. where you look around before you receive the ball and you're taking yep. pictures. Um, and the top players tend to be very, very good at that. So, so that's something that could still be prompted and encouraged by the coach then within the a game scenario. Um, but that, that's a different thing than kind of isolating it, isn't it, in, in the way we were talking about? Yeah. So if you want to get good at scanning in football, you should probably be in a football environment and learning how to look. So there's, there's two kinds of aspects to scanning, right? So you have to know, you, you have to be able to move around and look around the game, but you also have to be looking at the right things and when you're looking at the right things, you have to be able to perceive what's going on there. So, for example, if you put me in the middle of a Premier League football game, I could look around and I could see a bunch of players doing a bunch of things, but there would be a bunch of opportunities. So, so if I say I've got the ball and I'm looking for somewhere to pass, there would be opportunities to pass that I literally would not be able to see, that a professional footballer would literally be able to see. They'd be able to see that that was not they could pass that way or pass that way, and they could see that that uh, defender was coming from that way. There would just be things, even if I was looking at the right place in the field, I literally wouldn't see that opportunity because I hadn't spent time learning what that opportunity looks like and how to interact and engage with it. So scanning in and of itself, like, and, and oh, and here's the other thing as well, like, scanning more is not necessarily a good thing. If you spend all your time scanning and not kicking the ball, then you're going to get tackled and you're going to lose the ball, right? So there's 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 scanning, scanning behaviour, but it has to be in the service of actually achieving something. And so good scanning is effectively look at orienting your visual system to, to parts of the task environment that you find yourself in that offer useful opportunities for action and doing that in a timely fashion so that you can then take advantage of those opportunities before they go away, before the defenders close the gap or what have you. So, so yeah, scanning is fascinating and scanning is interesting and it's clearly a key part of these things. But, it's it, like, again, it's, it's all in service of skillfully engaging with what's currently going on rather than just accumulating information for the sake of accumulating information. What do you think of virtual reality for skill acquisition? <laughs> so I like it, uh, but I, I'm intrigued by its limitations as well as what it can do. So actually, so one of the one of the projects that's going on at Southampton is a virtual reality project. So I'm the director of studies for this, and I have a PhD student who's working on this. And we're using a virtual reality platform, uh, and one of the things we're going to be looking at is scanning behaviour and decision-making in the context of receiving a pass and then having to do something with that pass. So one of the virtual uh, reality technology is interesting in the sense that the technology has got good enough now and cheap enough that it's easy and available and you can create interesting environments. You can create quite, like, not you can create rich environments. And by that, I don't just mean like photorealistic, but you can create environments that create, that, that have opportunities to behave in them that are relevant all right, uh, to learning how to play, for example, football. So the technology's got to the point where you can present people with quite rich, dynamic, interactive uh, uh, sort of scenes. And you can also then have people interact quite directly, you know. So the, one of the nice things about immersive VR is that it, when I move my head, the whole scene moves in the same way that when I turn my head in the world, the whole scene moves. 
So there is lots of potential in actually, and so the project that we've got running uh, down there that we're developing now, we're going to be running some experiments explicitly looking at scanning behaviour and decision-making in context. Um, and so uh, on the one hand, I'm quite uh, optimistic that this technology will have some value. But also from the, on the flip side, with my ecological psychologist's sort of hat on, one of the complicated things about virtual environments, of course, is that the only thing that virtual environments show you is what you program into them, which means that if you don't program in the right things, then you're going to be teaching people to couple their movements to stuff that doesn't exist when they get out in the world. Um, and so there are, there's still a lot of really tough questions that we're going to have to ask about what transfers from what you do in the virtual environment to the real environment and vice versa. And so I mentioned earlier that learning doesn't transfer all that far. It'll transfer if sort of, if, if I train you in, a, in an environment where you get to perceive a certain set of opportunities for action, and if those opportunities then exist out in the real world, then you'd expect some, at least some transfer, right? But the power of virtual reality is that you get to make it look any way you like. The limitation and the risk of it is that if you don't make it look right, then you won't get any transfer. And so one of the things that we're going to be investigating and really kind of engaging with is, is not just can we use this technology to do some stuff, because we'll be able to use the technology to do some stuff. But then the question is, can we use this technology to do some stuff that then shows up on the field in some sense? So we're going to be... Uh, We'll be looking to run experiments, explicitly looking for this transfer out to the real world, um, and then engaging with what is it about the virtual environments that we're using that's helping or hindering that transfer. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of really open questions there. There's a lot of potential for virtual environments, um, and there's a lot of interest in using them, but there is a lot of unanswered questions about their value. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to trying to be able to find some answers to those at some point. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and you talked there about the work with Southampton. Could mm -hmm. you just outline what it is, the Learning Lab, and how it came about, please? Yeah, so, so a few years ago, uh, oh, it could be four or five years ago now, uh, I got uh, contacted by Malcolm Frame, who's the head of the psychology unit at Southampton, and he reaches out to people like me. He's very interested in, in ecological and embodied cognition ideas. And he'd come across a paper of mine. And so he reached out and made contact and we had some conversations. And so we just started having some chats about ecological things and about some of the things that he was trying to do at Southampton with the psychology group there, bringing in more embodied ideas. And so we had some conversations and eventually I went down to the club and met some people and we, had, we, we started to have a discussion about trying to create something at the club that kind of took these ideas and embedded them somehow into the practice of the club. Um, so we, we got to the point where we had some ideas and we'd been having these conversations and we sort of got to the, the point where we had some ideas that we could potentially start moving on with and then COVID arrived and so that put the kibosh on everything for a while. Um, but then when I reached back out to Malcolm after, I think, uh, you know, sort of after a few, after about eight or nine months after we'd been through the first lockdown and all that sort of stuff, sort of reached back out to get moving again, we started having some more conversations. And then we did, there were just some, some key people in the club uh, had, had sort of come on board at that time who were interested in, in, in getting the club really engaging with what learning is and how best to serve their athletes and how best to develop their coaches as well. 
And so then, yeah, so we, we, we took the ideas for sort of some research and some ideas and we started developing them into this project that has now become the Learning Lab at Southampton. So the goal of the Learning Lab is it's effectively, the goal is to put research activity around questions about learning, skill acquisition and and education, so teaching physical skills to athletes, but also educating coaches and coach development, asking questions about learning and embedding that research in the activity of the club and the, and the academy so that these things can start talking to one another and being in more into dialogue. So a lot of the time when academics do this kind of research, we, we bring a project in and then we work with a partner and then we go away again. And then the idea here is to actually create something that's much more of a synthesis. Um, and so we, over the past 18 months or so, uh, we've done a lot of things to just to get the Learning Lab project up and running. And the, the, the centrepiece right now of the Learning Lab is three PhD projects uh, around, so we've got one around the use of virtual reality and technology uh, and looking at that and studying learning using that. Um, we've got another one centered around these embodied and ecological ideas applications to sports psychology, and then another one to uh, coach development and coach practice. Um, and so over the course of the last 18 months or so, Malcolm and I started bringing sort of other academics in to start help us fleshing out the teams of more expertise around things that I don't know how to do, for example. Uh, and then we've recruited three PhD students, and those PhD students are now in place and starting to do their research and embed themselves in the club and be involved in coaching activities and all kinds of things like that. So at the moment, what the Learning Lab is, is it's a group of us uh, from the sort of the management group, uh, the people from Southampton involved in player development and coach development and psychology, the three PhD students, and then some academic partners who are coming in and supporting the research. And now that we're up and running and moving, we've got it to that point, we're now sort of in the next phase of development of really starting to think about what next to do, what more research uh, sort of programs to bring in, finding ways to integrate this the research activity with the uh, activity of the coaches and the players, starting to form those, those, those bridges of dialogue so that people are talking to one another, starting to share that practice, and then starting to do the research, to start to ask and answer some of these interesting questions and doing that in a way that then feeds into the, into the activity of the club. And is it mainly the academy or will the learning lab have kind of an impact throughout the whole club, the first team as well? I mean, eventually, hopefully everybody. We're focused in on the academy and sort of uh, uh, just for kind of pragmatic reasons, actually. So obviously the first team has a lot of things that they're busy doing and they there's, there's, they have limited time at the moment to be involved. Um, and, and, you know, they've got they've got a Premier League to play in and plenty of other things to worry about just at the moment. So a lot of the actual activity is happening more in the academy structure right now. But eventually the goal here again is to is to really create something that becomes part of the day-to-day -day life of the academy and the club as a whole. So that doing research around learning and doing that, having that research about learning be informed by the needs of the, of the various people in the club at various levels. We want all of that to be aligned and then we want it all to be broadly aligned along these ecological lines. So the idea is to develop a, a, a kind of a club culture and a club ethos that's all broadly oriented in the same direction. And so, again, you know, with the idea being that you come into the academy 
eight or nine, and then your experience as you progress up through the academy will be broadly consistent, right? You're not doing different things at different years, et cetera. So that's the kind of a longer-term goal. It's going to take time to, to, to create that kind of ecosystem. Um, but definitely the idea is to effectively make this part of the life of the club. Is this quite unique within football? There is a unique element or some real unique potential for what we're building at Southampton in, the, in that one of the reasons why the, the Learning Lab has got up and off the ground and moving reasonably quickly is that we've got really good buy-in from a lot of key players at lots of key positions in different parts of the club. And so there's a lot of, um, we're, you know, we're not, we're not having to uh, fight any major battles at this point about creating this space. There's a lot of willingness to, to, to investigate this is an idea and there's a lot of willingness and interest and in thinking that this might be a, an, an interesting way to go about doing the things that Southampton wants to do, which is to develop its players, to develop its coaches, to develop its people, uh, to be the best that they can be. And so um, I think my hope for this lab is that the unique aspect of it is that we're going to become a place where across this broad academy structure and all the way up, hopefully, into the first team and across the life of the, the, the club as a whole, we're going to be one of these places where everything is broadly aligned across the board and then we're going to be able to serve as a hub of activity to demonstrate we're going to be a place that's doing these ecological things, that's doing research on these ecological approaches, that's communicating and sharing what we're doing and what we're finding, and also become a place where people, all the people around the world who are doing this kind of stuff can come and, and join us and, and we can join with them so that we can start becoming a place that brings all these people together. That has been the thing that the field's really been lacking. Like I say, there's been a lot of really good work has been going on, but it's been a little bit here and a bit here and one person here and one person here. The goal now is to create a, a kind of a community hub to start bringing all this together. And, and, and that, to my knowledge, is going to be a, a really unique aspect of this project. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Andrew. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.